You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. Welcome to our special Living for the Bond series. Now, even though I love movies of all types from all different eras, my overall favorite film franchise is the James Bond series, which technically started in 1962 with the release of Dr. No, which starred Sean Connery and was directed by Terrence Young. This franchise has now endured for over almost six decades. I'll be revisiting one entry starring a different Bond every two weeks, leading up to the upcoming U.S. release of the 25th official installment of this franchise, No Time to Die, which is coming out on October 8th. I hope. The film we are here to discuss is Skyfall. It came out in 2012 and was directed by Sam Mendes. Country, England. Gun, shot. Agent, provocateur. Murder. Employment. Skyfall. Skyfall. Done. Some men are coming to kill us. We're gonna kill him first. It stars Daniel Craig, Judy Dench, Javier Bardem, Naomi Harris, Ben Wishaw, Bernice Marlowe, Ray Fiennes, and Albert Finney. The genre would be spy thriller. Is it even possible for a film franchise to achieve a new peak, 23 films, and or 50 years into its entire run? Well, for me, Skyfall provides a resounding answer to that question, and the answer is yes. If nothing else, it's among the most purely rewatchable Bond films, of which there are several. Now, why is it so rewatchable? Because there are literally no bad scenes, nor wasted scenes. Every character has a purpose, every action has a consequence, and every setup has a payoff. As written by Bond stalwarts Purvis and Wade, who had written several previous Bond films, along with John Logan, who was stepping in to also write it, the film has a deceptively ambling structure, mainly focusing on the latest struggles of both our hero Bond and his boss M, played for the last time but with true punch by the Dame Judi Dench. As the story kicks off, both M and Bond are not only fighting for their lives, but also to remain relevant, with the latest threat coming from super hacker Silva played deliciously by Javier Bardem. Silva's secret mini-organization has stolen an encrypted list of secret agent identities from MI6, and he intends to leak all that information gradually, all just in an effort to exact public humiliation for M, as she also runs MI6. All the while, M is also being pushed to early retirement by her new boss, Mallory, who will soon be running MI6 himself, and is played by Ray Fiennes, who also gives a quite a winning performance. Are we to call this civilian oversight? No, we're to call this retirement planning. Your country has only the highest respect for you and your many years of service. When your current posting is completed, you'll be awarded GCMG with full honors. Congratulations. You're firing me. No, ma'am. I'm here to oversee the transition period leading to your voluntary retirement in two months' time. Your successor has yet to be appointed, so we'll be asking you... I'm not an idiot, Mallory. I know I can't do this job forever. 
but I'll be damned if I'm going to leave the department in worse shape than I found it. Um, you've had a great run. You should leave with dignity. Oh, to hell with dignity. I'll leave when the job's done. Seeing as Craig was already kind of looking prematurely middle-aged, even when he started this role just six years prior in Casino Royale, but not in a bad way, I mean that beach scene, he's definitely looking it even more so here with lighter, shorter hair, a gaunter face, and certainly more grizzle. And it suits him. At least through the first half of the film, Bond just comes off as a weathered, gas-guzzling car trying to get his engine started, and it's fun to watch. And we know he's already showing more mileage after a thrilling cold opening scene during which he is shot twice in the shoulder and chest. And he's also chased an assassin on foot, train, motorcycle, Land Rover, and even Digger, all unsuccessfully to just end up at the bottom of a waterfall left for dead, just as that Adele title song starts to kick in. Beyond that, everything we see from the get-go just looks gorgeous, thanks to the work of the legendary Roger Deakins, who was this film's cinematographer. Seriously, this is, at the very least, the best-looking Bond film, and it does serve a purpose. All the action is shot cleanly, and there is just no shortage of iconic images as a result. There's Bond standing proudly in a tux, floating center frame to that casino in Macau, or the long shot of the abandoned island where Silva's server hideout is located as we see Bond being taken there on a sailboat. Movies are a visual medium, after all, and the director, Mendez, fully embraced this, as he did with previous films like American Beauty and Road to Perdition. Elevating the film even further is plenty of sharp dialogue throughout. We're actually finally reintroduced to returning characters from the Bond franchise, including Q and Moneypenny, and in the most clever ways. When Bond meets the new Quartermaster, otherwise known as Q, drolly played by Ben Wishaw, it's a true highlight. 007. I'm your new Quartermaster. You must be joking. Why, because I'm not wearing a lab coat? Because you still have spots. My complexion is hardly relevant. Your competence is. Age is no guarantee of efficiency. And youth is no guarantee of innovation. I'll hazard I can do more damage on my laptop sitting in my pyjamas before my first cup of Earl Grey than you can do in a year in the field. Oh, so why do you need me? Every now and then a trigger has to be pulled. Skyfall is just loaded with gems like those, and never in a showy Aaron Sorkin kind of way. Everyone involved is just effectively playing an intelligent adult. Even Bardem, who stays true to that long-standing tradition of scenery-chewing Bond villains while never dumbing it down. His introduction to Bond, and to us, doesn't even come until over an hour into the film, but it's well worth the wait. We see a long shot of him coming down an open elevator in the distance as he starts to slowly walk towards Bond, who's tied up in a chair. He starts gently monologuing the entire time about rats and coconuts as he walks closer to the camera. Watching and listening to Bardem just killing this introduction while sporting a creepy blonde wig and bleached complexion, it's just one of many examples of Mendez, with help from Deacons, of course, breathing new life into a franchise trope by making it more cinematic. Hello, James. Welcome. Do you like the island? My grandmother had an island. Nothing to boast of. We could walk around it in an hour. But still, it was, it was a paradise for us. One summer, we went for a visit and discovered the place had been infested with rats. They'd come on a fishing boat and gorged themselves on coconut. So how do you get rats off an island? Hmm? 
my grandmother showed me. We buried an oil drum and hinged the lid. Then we wired coconut to the lid as bait, and the rats would come for the coconut, and plunk, 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 they would fall into the drum. And after a month, you've trapped all the rats. But what did you do then? Burn it? No. You just leave it. And they begin to get hungry. And one by one, they start eating each other until there are only two left, the two survivors. And then what? Do you kill them? No. You take them and release them into the trees. But now they don't eat coconut anymore. Now they only eat rat. You have changed their nature. The whole cast brings their A-game, especially Dench, who really seems to be relishing the opportunity to have her character given more dimension and runtime compared to previous films. Chairman, ministers, today I've repeatedly heard how irrelevant my department has become. Why do we need agents, the double O section? Isn't it all rather quaint? Well, I suppose I see a different world than you do. And the truth is that what I see frightens me. I'm frightened because our enemies are no longer known to us. They do not exist on a map. They're not nations. They are individuals. Look around you. Who do you fear? Can you see a face, a uniform, a flag? No. Our world is not more transparent now. It's more opaque. It's in the shadows. That's where we must do battle. So, before you declare us irrelevant, ask yourselves, how safe do you feel? And it all culminates in a climax which many have dismissed as, quote, Bond alone, you know, like Home Alone, but which I feel is pretty inventive. Bond, M, and Kincaid, played to crusty perfection by Albert Finney, hole up in his old childhood home in Scotland, which is the titular Skyfall, to draw out Silva and his goons, setting up traps at every entrance and under floorboards to kill them, mainly with broken glass and explosives. Hey, it's fun and it works. As a Bond film and just plain movie, Skyfall is just loaded with great characters and great moments. The overall story involving the retrieval of the MacGuffin, that online list of sleeper agents, it's likely its weakest aspect, but it's kind of dropped in the last half hour. Which is fine, because this remains a more personal story about both Bond and M seeking redemption and relevance again. And it gets resolved in a very satisfying and emotional way. Even better, the strength of this film helped make Bond himself more relevant again. For myself, too, which is a big reason why I consider it my personal favorite. And that brings me to the categories. Because this is part of our Living for the Bond series, the first category is Best Bond Bit. This series has so many elements which carry over from installment to installment. Opening credit sequence, Bond girls, henchmen, villains lair, gadgets, cold open, final fight, etc. And this award goes to the one that stands out the most for this particular entry in the Bond franchise. And for Skyfall... It has to be that opening credit sequence, which was designed by Daniel Kleinman, who has done this for every Bond film since Goldeneye. I would actually say that the sequences that he designed for the first three Daniel Craig Bond films are among the best in the series, but none more so than the work he does this time around, which actually has quite a narrative to it. It almost feels like a POV journey floating through Bond's mind after he has been shot. We are seeing 3D-like imagery of gravestones, shadowy visages of Bond himself, 
shooting at something, but we don't know what it is. Chinese dragons. It's all very eye-popping and is helped very much by, you guessed it, the next category. And the next category would be best needle drop, the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. And that needle drop is Adele's gorgeous title song, which plays over the sequence. And if you're not hooked by this point, then I can't imagine what it would take to hook you. Skyfall, the song, is in the great tradition of true belter Bond themes like Shirley Bassey's Goldfinger or Nancy Sinatra's You Only Live Twice. Heavily orchestrated ballads that just nail you in the gut, but in the best way. The song became a phenomenon in itself and won the Oscar for Best Original Song, along with being among Adele's highest-selling singles. Now, just talking about how it sounds really doesn't do it justice. You'll just have to hear it. For this is the end I've drowned and dreamed this moment So overdue I owe Swept away I'm stolen Let the sky The next category would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. French, Chinese, Cambodian actress Bernice Marlowe makes quite the impression in just a few scenes as the mysterious Severin, who Bond first sees in Shanghai, then meets at the casino in Macau. Her character apparently works for Bardem Silva, and in one highly memorable exchange with Bond, we watch him figure out the relationship and just how scared she is of Silva. How much do you know about fear? All there is. Not like this. <laughs> Not like him. I can help you. I don't think so. Let me try. How? Bring me to him. Can you kill him? Yes. Will you? Someone usually dies. <laughs> Perhaps you can. Disappointingly, her character leaves the film rather quickly, and the way she is dispatched is cold, to say the least. I'm not sure how, but I feel like she could have been more integrated into the rest of the story involving Silva once we've actually met him, and I just would have liked more of her, which is one of the few criticisms I have for this movie. And that brings me to the trailer moment. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. Now, in recent years, the term fan service has become a dirty word because we are now inundated with too many franchises which just seem to continuously dish out little reminders of other films or TV shows or comic books related to said franchise, which often takes the place of actually, you know, telling a story. That said, fan service can still be utilized well to enhance the story or at the very least, take it in a fun, unexpected direction. And one such example is the trailer moment for this film. Now, we are more than two-thirds of the way through the movie, 
and Bond has just helped prevent an assassination attempt of M by Silva. But it's clear that Silva and his henchmen will soon be back. He has been one step ahead of both Bond and M for the entire film, and they now have to figure out a way to escape London without being continuously monitored by Silva, as all available automobiles have tracking systems in them. Well, all automobiles except one. Bond takes M to a hidden garage inside an alley, the door opens, and what should appear but the original Aston Martin DB5 from Goldfinger, the OG car with the gadgets, which has come to define Bond. Not only do we see it, but we hear the first few notes of the original Monty Norman Bond theme just start to kick in. It's just a great audience-pleasing moment, which always puts a smile on my face, and for good reason. It's just a kick to watch Bond and M drive off into the London night in the DB5, and even to watch them banter a bit as he threatens to pull the ejector seat on her. It's just a great moment. Very comfortable, is it? Are you going to complain the whole way? Oh, go on then, eject me. See if I care. Where are we going? Back in time. And that would bring me to the final category, the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Now, as much as I want to give major props to Craig, Mendez, Bardem, Dench, and the writing team involved. Because let's face it, everybody brought their A-game to this production. I have to award the MVP to the one man who truly took this film into the stratosphere, above most, if not all other Bond films, along with most other franchise blockbusters in general. And that man is the Deke, Roger Deakins. Roger Deakins is a British cinematographer who for the past two decades before Skyfall was often mentioned as a special talent among cinephiles meaning people who just like really know movies. He started in the 80s and shot a few notable films, including Sid and Nancy and 1984. But it was during the 90s that he really started to shine, especially as the go-to guy for the Coen brothers, helping to give each of their films such distinctive looks and feels. And wow, Barton Fink, The Secret Garden, The Shawshank Redemption, Dead Man Walking, Fargo, Courage Under Fire, Kundun, and The Big Lebowski. Yeah, we're talking pretty much most of the best-looking Hollywood films of the 1990s. But in mainstream circles, Deakins didn't seemingly become the beloved household name that he is today until the world en masse saw his amazing work in the highest-grossing Bond film, adjusted for inflation, in 37 years. That's right, this film was huge, on a level for the franchise not seen since its mid-60s Connery peak. Thunderball, Goldfinger, You Only Live Twice. Back when Bond was the only major film franchise putting out sequels on a regular basis, and the only big game in town. Skyfall was so big that Deakins became known, and he received an Oscar nomination for his work for Best Cinematography, one of 15 that he has received overall, including two wins. You see, even though Bond films have always had a history of presenting us with exotic locations, here is one that even went further. He made the Shanghai skyline at night look otherworldly. He made the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul look intimidating. And of course, he made Bond look good. Bond is an iconic character, and a big part of what makes Skyfall so special is that he's presented that way. Towards the end, there's even that lasting image of Craig standing on a London rooftop, looking out over the city wearing a long coat and scarf with the Union Jack flag flying nearby. It's a glorious shot, and describing it on a podcast 
really doesn't even do it justice. But thanks to Deacons, it's one that's permanently burnt in my brain. Wow. I didn't even know you could come up here. I hate to waste a view. I can see why. I thought you were going back out on active service. I declined. You said it yourself. Fieldwork's not for everyone. If it helps, I feel a lot safer. My rating for Skyfall would be five stars out of five. This is a near-perfect film. And as franchise sequels have increasingly dominated film going over the past several years, for me, Skyfall remains the best modern action blockbuster of the past decade. And among Bond canon, it's just above Goldfinger, License to Kill, The Spy Who Loved Me, and Casino Royale. Also, very elite company. Skyfall is just an all-timer, and chances are that you've already seen it. But if you haven't, it's currently streaming on Hulu and Paramount+. And that ends another revitalized review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.